0: Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know, to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Hello,
1: everyone. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, your chance to hear from experts in business and management and leadership and hopefully pick up in less than 30 minutes one proven practical idea that will help you run a more successful and sustainable business in your own organization. Today's guest, he is a very good steward. I've come to realize that he was handed a lot with a tremendous amount of responsibility and he's done nothing but make it better. He is extremely creative. I think he's situationally extremely disciplined. I say situationally because I think there he knows there's certain things where 80 percent's is good enough and others' perfection is probably more likely required. I have a sneaking suspicion he likes basketball. I, I'm, I'm going to find that out here in just a minute. And he's a genuinely good guy, nice guy and somebody who cares about the communities in which his businesses operate. So his name is Rob Conley. He's the CEO of Henny Penny. They're a global supplier of food service equipment out of Eaton, Ohio. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on the Ed Epley Experience.
2: Oh, thank you, Ed. I'm happy to be here. I love talking about business and Henny Penny and just what's happening in the world and how we can make it better.
1: Well, am I correct that you have a, a somewhat of an interest in basketball, collegiate basketball? perhaps? I do, more th- I
2: do. <laughs> too. And, and not only just because I went to University of Kentucky, which annoys more people than people appreciate, but I grew up, my father went to University of Dayton. And okay. so I grew up going to University of Dayton basketball games from when I was a little kid. And like to me what sports is, that shared experience with your family or whatever. So I love University of Dayton basketball, always have, and took a a brief pause as I went to UK. (laughs) I still like UK, but my heart's with uh, University of Dayton.
1: Now, which one of the May brothers went to UK? Was it Donnie May that went to UK?
2: Donnie, well, both went to UD. Don May was on the great team where we went to the finals of the NCAA okay. in 1967 when I was 10 years old. All right. <laughs> and then his brother, Ken, yeah. followed him. And I defense. thought one of
1: them went to the University of Kentucky. I was wrong then. Okay. No, my bad on that. Well, in any event, if UD played UK, who would you pick? Who, who would you be rooting for?
2: Well, I actually had that happen. They played UD and UK, played at, at University of Cincinnati, uh, or played in Cincinnati. Yeah. This was maybe 10 years ago or so. Yeah. And I was actually pulling for Dayton. I like, Don't tell my UK <laughs> friends. <laughs> I, you know, I'm also one of these that it was like, it was more important to UD than UK. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there's one of those yeah. like, yeah. okay, like it, it, it would mean nothing <laughs> In the right. end to right. the UK. Either right. way, right. it meant so much to U- UD. So I was rooting for UD.
1: So how did you get to Henny Penny? Was that right out of college, or was there where there no. some stops along the way?
2: Yeah, no, I had a I had a big stop at a company called Verifone. I was there for twenty years. Okay, and uh, Verifone makes the, the credit card terminals for like yeah Visa and Mastercard. Yeah, and it was a wonderful experience. I was there. It was a small startup when I joined based in Hawaii.
1: Oh, Um, nice.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I had been out of school for four years, was just really going to be going, was in the process of applying to business schools. You know, that was kind of the normal mode in that day where you'd work for four or five years and then go to business school. Right. I was just in that process of of, uh, applying to business schools. And this company came along and, you know, I heard about this with uh, the credit card terminals and we're selling to banks and that uh, everything about it seemed like, wow, this is going to be something really interesting. And we're on the cusp of something big. And then they were like, and the guy was like, and we're based in Hawaii. And I was like, do I get to go to headquarters? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're like, yeah. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I'll give that a try.
1: So, I don't care what you yeah. pay me. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm Exactly. On it was
2: like, well, yeah. this will be better. I'll, I'll probably get a better business degree and I won't have to pay for it than uh, by just doing this. So I thought I'll give it a try for a couple of years. And it was unbelievable. It was. Uh, we were a fast growing company. I joined in 1984. It was like 15 million, 30 million, 45 million. It was all the things of growth. In 1990, we went public. Oh, wow. And that was a whole new thing. Right. And you know, this opportunity of how you needed some people that, you know, people had been there with you, but then you needed new experience and people who had been through a public and, and the growth and the challenges of that. And then in 97, we were acquired by Hewlett Packard. that was a whole different experience. And they're an incredible company, but learning how to be in a company of hundreds of thousands of people. And then in 2001, we were spun off into private equity, which was a whole nother thing. And it was a fascinating time. And then in 2005, we were just being spun back out publicly and is when I joined Henny Penny. And that came about by, uh, I was very good friends with the owner of Penny Penny, a guy named Steve Cobb, who's an incredible man. And we were good friends on some nonprofit boards together, socially did a lot with our wives and whatever. And he just, you know, said, hey, would you be interested in maybe talking about a job? And that's where it started.
1: What was your journey at Verifone? What, did you start out in sales, marketing, finance? What was the the disciplines you followed?
2: Yeah, it was sales. It came up through kind of support sales and then marketing and then general management. But one of the things I'd found, and they were great. I mean, it was a company that they considered themselves, especially in the beginning when I joined them, as distance insensitive. You could live wherever. (laughs) And they were uh, early on, like we, we were doing email in 1984. Now, Email was around in 1984 in companies, but most companies, if you sent an email, nobody read it because nobody was really on it. So what I found is, is that as my career matured, I really wanted to be around the table, you know, get to the C-suite or whatever. I I had to move to California or join a competitor and they were in Atlanta or different places. And, and I had no interest in leaving the Dayton community. So they continued to be really good and supportive to me, but I, I was basically new. I was giving up some, some of the opportunities of which, interestingly enough, I started getting involved with nonprofits in the community and using what I really enjoy doing as strategy and looking at things and trying to understand what's trying to be done and how do you put together a plan to, to optimize that.
1: So when you joined Henny Penny, was it right away as a CEO or did you evolve from some lower level?
2: Yeah. So I joined as vice president of marketing and had also customer and technical services. Okay. And Steve owned the company and I was just happy to kind of be at a place where I could help him. Right. And just be one of his uh, he had a management team of like five and was just around the table, loved being around the table and helping and supporting. And never I, I never really even had any thoughts that I would do anything other than that. He had come to me and I remember in 2007 and he was like, hey, Rob, I think I'd like you to be president. And I was like, really? Like <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean I had no I mean, he's two years younger than me. I was never like I mean it was his company, so I was always just happy to be out helping him do whatever he wanted to do within yeah. it. So I had no thoughts or aspirations to do that. And he was just like ah you do that part better than me. Let's let's go do it. We've been an incredible team. I've learned so much. He's a, a really special person, but uh, that was uh and then it became president and, uh, you know, marched on. But one of the best things to me about the experience with Steve is we, when I joined, we were really good friends. You know, wasn't sure intellectually if it'd be like, gosh, is that going to be tough working for somebody or awkward or like, uh, I don't want to run into them at a party or whatever. And, and I can tell you now we're even better friends. That's, that's remarkable. And it's so, it's been so special. And we just had this incredible relationship and grown a lot. I consider him, you know, a closest friend, mentor, everything. Just, it's been very special.
1: That That's not normal. The majority of times when I know people who are friends go into business together or work with each other, it's it's more often than not that the friendship, it doesn't get any better. Let's put it that way. Yes. It, it may not yes. get bad, but it doesn't get any better. So you've, you've yeah. been blessed to have that opportunity, that situation. Henny Penny is a pretty special company. For those of you who've, who don't know anything about the company, go to their website and there's a lots of information there. There's lots of it's a humble company, from everything that I know about it, and and the people that I've been exposed to. But they're also they're a player. They they have a significant place in the quick service food industry. So why don't you describe real quickly Henny Penny to our audience?
2: So we uh, we started in 1957. It is I think a really special company, and it's uh, there is a lot of good people, caring people, just doing good work and. And within that, you know, we're not unique. There are lots of companies that do that. And and, and I don't, you know, want to pretend like we're perfect or anything, but but there is this, you know, when I first came in and really just started studying it and looking at it, it was like there was some things that were just really special. And I think it 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 started with you know being a privately held company. I think it it offers you an opportunity to have a culture that's not influenced from a short-term thinking. Right. And, you know, so whether it's public or private equity that's looking to kind of dress things up and flip it, and, and I would say, you know, public companies or whatever, they're, they're not bad. They're, they're good public companies. You can just get a bias of, of a culture. And so what we had was this culture that, that starts with a long view. And when you have a long view, it influences a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And to me, in a really positive way. And so we invest in our people and our facilities. We're never making decisions that would be, you know, where you're kind of shaking your head, where it's like, it's not really good for the customer, or it doesn't really make sense, but you got to do it for the quarter. You know, you get into, you know, that that kind of a dynamic. So we just don't have that dynamic. So... It's this uh, long view and that relationships matter. And so within that, I would say, you know we we care a lot about the relationships with employees, with our suppliers, with our customers, with the community, and we work on those relationships and and uh, we one, one kind of example of that is, you know, we really believe that you need to play well with others. And if you are a jerk, you know, we're not going to hire you. And, <laughs> you know, like the kid, you know, like they, they can still get through, <laughs> yep. you know, yep. but, but we really prioritize the fact of getting along with others. And so if you're really good, but you're a jerk, we're not going to put up with it because we think life's too short. And it changes the culture too much. And, and when you see companies looking the other way with jerks, we think it's, it's really bad. And you don't have to have jerks. So we, we try to really work on that. But we, we also prize our relationship with our suppliers. Like we want them to be, to do well. We don't want to just burn them up and beat them down. And then, and then, and this comes back to the long view. Then what? Like you run them out of business? Like yeah. where's that get you? So we really spend a lot of time on relationships.
1: What's the pros and the cons of being in the quick service food industry, being a, a key supplier to these people like Wendy's and McDonald's and Chick-fil-A?
2: Yeah. Well I I, I tell you the um some of the best things is these are world class companies that are really amazing companies and so you know i'll just take mcdonald's you know they get a lot of heat they're in the politics all the time they're a target for everything and and they get blamed for a lot of stuff and whether or not you know people say i never go there or i only eat salads there it's like whatever um <laughs> less, well, well you know, i,
1: I you am know. not i'm not one of them i absolutely obsess on certain <laughs> sandwiches and the fries so yes. i, I yeah. i'm one of their better customers
2: <laughs> and there are a lot of people that found out you know like hey they were going to their favorite coffee chain for breakfast or a uh, coffee and they were getting the yeah. breakfast and yeah they were seeing they were getting a heated up you know rethermed thing and you right. go to, McDonald's and it's actually a cracked egg, it, that's you know. Right. But but I, I would just say this, separate of their their food or getting involved in that, they are they serve over seventy million people a day.
1: Really? Wow. Know, I
2: mean, wow! Just try to get your head around it: seventy million people a day worldwide and over thirty eight thousand restaurants. And I can tell you, you can have a Big Mac in Shanghai in Moscow, in Milan, in London, or here in Eaton, Ohio, and they taste the same. They do. (laughs) And whatever you think, it's unbelievable they do that. And I've done it. I've had them at all those places. (laughs) But it's, uh, I mean, just how they do it. Yeah. Through supply chains, cultures, and whatever, and they also ha- deal with issues that nobody else deals with. Like, you know, when if they add something to their menu, it takes them a month, if not a year, to to get the supply chain right. Right. I mean, if they add blueberries to something, they would suck up the world supply of blueberries just filling their supply chain. So they they can't just do stuff. So one, you know, it's our privilege to have these customers that are the you know some of the finest food service providers in the world so we we learn a lot you know chick-fil-a is an unbelievable company you know you'd mentioned wendy's we also are involved in casual dining with like say cracker barrel chilies kroger whatever our, our customer is anybody who does food is critical to their business they do it in high volume okay and, and so what I like to say if in our business, if it, if it was like the auto business or whatever, we sell buses. We make the biggest, best bus in the world. We just don't sell any cars. So for somebody who cares about their consistency, the efficiency, the quality or whatever, we're built for them and uh, that's who we cater to.
1: You know, you mentioned now Chick-fil-A and I, I and McDonald's. Those are very different companies yep. who have entirely different strategies about what they're trying to do. So, are they that different in how they in terms of what they want from your products and services or are they very similar?
2: You know, it's kind of like, I mean, we we customize our products for our customers. Okay. So, you know, we might have a fryer and think of the fryer as almost like a PowerPoint. And then you then build a a presentation for McDonald's and it does that and it's only for them and they can only get that. And you build one for Chick-fil-A. So we we do a lot of customization to what they want to do. They both want to be really efficient and effective and serve, you know, tasty food. They are very different. They are both uh, really, I have a lot of respect, but they are very different, and I can't really compare them in that they each have some really unique things. But one separator is just their scale is so different, right? You know, I mean, right. McDonald's is a lot larger, but Chick Fil A is phenomenal in how they how they do things and their volumes, and their they are a company that it believes in the long view. We, we, you know, they have, they invest. If you go in and you see their food, even their containers, their, their people, they, they are investing. They get the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that the, their efficiency and their ability to move people through their restaurants or their their drive throughs is is just amazing. Yeah. And I also marvel at their site selection being so different than most quick service food. Because they're they right. want they want you to go there two or three times a week where so many of the quick service locations are on interstates and they're expecting you one time and they'll never see you again. And they don't care if you come back. I mean they are not against it, but they're they're right. just built to be convenient.
2: Yeah. And I I, I really have a huge amount of respect for both, love them both as, yeah. as you know, like I right. would normally say, but I believe it. I, to me, and you can't really even compare them. To me, it's almost like comparing like a good steak to strawberry pie. It's like, mm. well, I love them both, yep. and, but they're different. Yep. You know, it's not like, well, you know, which one's a better, you know, whatever. It's like they do the best for what they are.
1: So what was it? 2014, you became CEO? Yes. And and so was that at the same time the company went ESOP?
2: The following year. Okay. So in 2015, we did. Okay.
1: You know. So for the folks on the podcast who are not familiar with that employee stock ownership plan, I think it's it's what ESOP yes. stands for. So the employees essentially become the owners of the business. And it's a wonderful model to allow an owner or a couple of owners to extract their equity or value and yet keep the business in a really strong position to remain closely held, privately owned for the foreseeable future. And I think it's served the organization pretty well from everything I can tell. Is that right,
2: Rob? It's been phenomenal. You know, we could could have a whole podcast on employee-owned companies, and they're really interesting. They're generally misunderstood. There's like Bad stories and good stories and their reasons for those. There's people that it makes sense for and people it doesn't make sense for and kind of getting through all of that. But we were a company, you know, it first started with, it was a major gift by Steve Cobb to the employees and the community and his customers. He, he was focused. Uh, he wasn't really looking for a liquidity event. He wasn't looking to get out. He was focused on, he had felt very fortunate. He was a second generation owner of Henny Penny. He had felt very fortunate for what Henny Penny had meant to him, what it had meant to the employees, what it had meant to the community. And he was like, how can I, you know, increase the likelihood that 25 years, 50 years from now, Henny Penny would still be Henny Penny. And exploring a lot of different, options and came upon the ESOP model and that has made it so we can continue to be privately held with a long view of value and relationships and it it is it, it's so amazing in that everybody in the company you know whether you come in and you start on the line uh, starting hourly pay uh, pay everybody gets to participate in the ownership of the company and participate in the value creation as the company becomes uh, the better we do the better everybody does and there is you know like I like to say you know it takes people a while to kind of get their head around this it's like You know, we've got a great model in our country. You can go to work for someone and you can use your talents and skills and you get paid for that and you move up. But most people do not get to own a company. right? And that's usually for the owners, the senior managers, the investors. It's not for everybody. But here, it's like you can be that and you can participate in a meaningful way. And it's you like I talk about. It's like it's, you know, there's no longer the man.
1: To it. You, you are the man. You are the man, right? <laughs>
2: and there is no man in between. So we're totally focused on, you know, our employees and what it means to them.
1: Have you seen it positively affect productivity?
2: I think it affects the overall culture, which affects the productivity. And I think we we had a fairly Effective culture and people trying to do the best they could and right. worked hard. I mean, it's just kind of the. I think we've got salt of the earth people here that are, have been here for a long time. But, but I do think it it has. We have a couple things that we we do each year, and we have a annual company performance bonus that is an extra bonus that everybody participates in. That everybody gets the same number, and that is based on the performance from the year before. So in February, we go over the last year's performance, how we did, we give out some awards, and then we announce what the company performance bonus was for last year. And then later in the year, we have our owner's day where we are announcing the share price Because once a year, the company is revalued. There's a whole process with that. There's a valuation firm. And so we give some awards, and then we announce how the the shares went. And then they will get a statement right after that where they got each year, you're going to get more shares. And then we've been fortunate. The stock's gone up every year. So you get this compounding effect of more shares, plus the share price goes up. And it's become more and more meaningful And I think it was after about five years when most of the other Aesop's told us that's about a magic number because what happens is their statements start to become big enough where the spouse says, now, what is this?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: How is this working? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's real money. All of a sudden, it's really important. Exactly. Yeah, that's very cool. That's what I've seen too with other companies. Well, I'm excited for you, and I'm happy for you that you've seen these kinds of impacts from not only the the results you produce, but the ESOP uh, structure that you've used. I've written a book called "Let's Be Clear," and in there, I talk about that. I think any manager's job at every level, and you know, highest, lowest. primarily exists because you need to produce results and you have to grow people. And the reason you have to grow people is so that you can keep with with up with the rising costs of doing business. So, and those tend to go up by 3 to 5% a year, according to Peter Drucker. And I've, I've never heard anybody argue with that premise or right. that theory. Right. So uh, how much time do you spend at Henny Penny trying to develop – people in, in general? And then uh, you, how much time do you at a CEO level work at trying to develop your own people? Or do you expect them to do that on their own?
2: You know, I see it, you know, and it's kind of funny. There's a lot of things where it's kind of like, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. I see it as critical. And, you know, I, I think when people talk about, and I would support the notion that, you know, at the, a, a company in the end, if they want to be a thriving company, is really a, a people development company, and Correct. you better be uh, you, you better be intentional and you better be focused on that. And it doesn't just happen. And even if you're developing people and some of them leave, I'd much rather develop them with the that and and uh, because if you don't, you know, it's kind of the joke. Like, what do you want them to be with you when they didn't develop? Because right. We're, we're growing, we're thriving. And, and as we're growing and thriving, we, we have so much opportunity and we need people to be growing to keep up. We need to make sure that we can continue to serve McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and Wendy's and Sonic and whatever. And, and the only way to do that is we got to keep growing. You know, we've done business with Chick-fil-A for 50 some years. Wow. Wow. You know what, you know what that gets us to me is just the right to win the business again today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if we don't realize that it's like somebody who can't, if, if we figured out a better way to make a holding cabinet or something and didn't use steel because we, you know, somebody came in with something and then the steel guys come in and say, well, why? I can't believe you did that to me. Why are you doing that to me? It's like, I'm not doing anything to you. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, I'm just trying to, if, if somebody can come into one of our customers and show them a better way, I, they aren't going to buy from me just because they have for 50 years. I right. think there is a lot, what they've given me is the privilege to know more, to be there and to win it. But then I've got to win it. And so within that, we need to continue to have our people grow. And, and so I think, it starts with me, you know, I think for any leader or, you know, it starts with you better You better kind of know where you're going and then you better understand the seats, you know, the people that are reporting to you that you need to have in place to get there. And then you get the best people in those seats and then you align and support them. And really, that's my number one thing. I've got a great leadership team and all I do is uh, they'll... they'll the laugh at me in general, like I, I just try to support them. Like I don't do anything. <laughs> you know, I, you know, people ask me like, what do you do? And I was like, I just bug the people, but I really <laughs> that report to me. <laughs> I just really try to, uh, you know, help them, support them. You know, watch their energy, help them, you know, work through things. But it's really about kind of loving, supporting, developing them and making sure, you know, what they want to do that we're working on that. You know, where do you want to go from here?
1: If I worked for you, how often would you talk to me about doing something better or different in the role that I'm in? Would it be a quarterly conversation? Would it be an annual conversation? Is there a a discipline that you bring to those conversations or are they more, you know, just uh, opportunistic in nature?
2: So we have, there's some formal parts of this. And we we also are a user of EOS Uh from Traction. And uh, so within that, there is kind of development and, you know, what are we doing to improve and how we align? I would say this, you know, for my reports, I'm meeting either, mostly every other week. Okay. A one-to-one. Okay. And within that one-to-one, there is a continuing theme of like, how are you doing? What's going on? What are we working on? What can I help you with? And and those so there is I would say a continuous conversation because I'd say one of the things that we are really focused on is you know how do we get better? You know, we're we're a, a, an organization that's never satisfied. Now, what I have to balance with that is for us to kind of pull back and see how great we're doing. Yeah even though we're not satisfied. Yeah. And so I love the fact that we're not satisfied and I'm never satisfied. At the same time, I have a an incredible amount of appreciation and gratitude about how well we're doing and kind of balancing those two things.
1: It's a very fine line between being extremely confident and becoming arrogant. And when a company's doing very well, that Balance beam can can move very quickly from being on one side versus the other, and arrogance is where it's so it's so dangerous because you quit listening you 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 don't you don't Absolutely. pay attention yeah
2: yeah and it's and I'd it, say you know most most of the great companies that fail you can you know it's you can pretty much pinpoint it's like when does that start it's like in their heyday yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you know it's so easy to start thinking you figured it out. Yes, and you know I'm I'm fortunate enough that I've like I know there's like <laughs> you know you're you're fortunate and there's a whole lot of things that you can learn and do better and know and like we don't have it figured out and I I, I you know like the day you figure out like oh, I really know how to do innovation. You know, it's like, okay, uh, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I, agree you. You I, I agree with you. The day you think you figured out anything. <laughs> I, I love the, the notion, and I think it's true. The more you know about something, the more you realize how much you have to learn. Yes. I think there was the classic kind of interview test where they were asking people, like, how much they knew Excel. And, and they had the, the people that said they really knew it Tested against the ones that said, oh, I I, I used it, but there's so much. I, you know, the people that said, like, there's so much I don't know, knew it way better <laughs> than the people that said I know it.
1: I, I had not heard of that, but the, as soon as you said it, it was kind of like, yeah, that sounds very normal. That That would sound very likely to be true, as you just described it. There's a management premise that says structure should be driven by strategy. I'm curious, in an organization like yours, which has been harder to get? right and r- recognizing it's a false premise that you ever figure it really out but is it harder to get your strategy correct or is it harder to get the structure that you need for the strategy you've chosen
2: yeah first of all i'd agree with you like you need them both you know I love oh, yeah. you know when they had the thing where it's like okay you know culture eats strategy for breakfast or whatever yeah, it's kind right. of like to me it's like food and water you know or yeah. yeah. Somebody say, well, if you could have one, which one would it be? And it would be like, well, I don't think one would just do it for me. I'm going to need more than the one. But uh, accepting, you know, what do I say, which, which to me is harder. And I would say uh, the strategy execution because I think the tendencies for most of us continue to be winning the day. Yeah. And yeah. taking that uh, longer view of these things, it'd be like you can rationalize or say it's not now or, or it sounded good then, but we really need to do this right now. So I would say the, the discipline uh, of the strategy execution versus the day to day is a bigger battle. There's more opportunity where, you know, for, for many companies, it's like the, st- strategy process is a they, they they go go away they do that work and then you know pray half the groups like can we now get back to our jobs yes. yeah. work so yeah. to me the execution becomes almost more important than how good the plan is i mean i think you could have an 80% plan that was executed that's way better than a 95% plan that isn't I agree. so yeah that, to me, the, the strategy execution is. A big challenge.
1: Well, our time is flying by, which is a good signal to me that it's it's been uh, provocative and, and and interesting and entertaining. So I appreciate that. But we have to move to our final question, which always a, a revolves around what would be the one thing that you would offer up to peers or executives and other companies if they were going to do just one thing to run a more successful and sustainable business. What's what's that most important thing in your mind, Rob? If you if you had to prioritize.
2: Yeah, I would say, and it's, it's related a little bit to what we were talking about. I, I think that desire to always get better and improve, whether it be for yourself, your department, your company. And if you have that desire, what it leads to is this curiosity and you remain open and curious to really figure out how can i how can we get better how can we do this better how can we and and i think within that it it develops if you have a capacity for feedback and whether you know to me the highest performing organizations the highest performing people have figured out a way uh, and they're thirsty for feedback and they don't take it personally, and it helps them have a better view of what's going on. And, and, and I would say many people do not have a capacity and a thirst for feedback, and it hurts them and it holds them back. And, and if you can then really desire it, you'll then figure out how to get it. I, I use the example of like, say, if your grandmother cooked a meal for you and she had you over and she said, Ed, how'd you like dinner? You know, you're gonna say it was great. Cause but but think if she was really wanting feedback and really wanting and, and if she said, Hey Ed, I'm working I'm I'm taking a culinary class and I'm I'm really working on it. Would you give me one or two thoughts on how I might get it better? She's given you permission. Oh yeah. So the first time the first question she had, she could come back and say she asked for feedback. But she didn't really ask it in a way. So I think us having this desire for feedback and understanding how powerful it is and our desire to do it and to help teach people about the power of that. So to me that, you know, it kind of just started with that the desire to improve and then the curiosity and then a capacity for feedback.
1: Yep. And to and to hear it and to receive it. Yes. That, I, I appreciate that, Rob. That's, that's, a, that's a good one. I, I think our, our audience will agree with you that that's super critical. He's Rob Conley. He's the CEO of Henny Penny. Rob, if people want to get in touch with you, want to find out more, would like to communicate with you in any way, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: Probably email. It's rconley at hennypenny.com. Then after that, I have my office phone number. I don't think I've answered my office phone in years, but I do have my <laughs> cell phone, and that's a, that's another way. I'm always interested in talking about strategy perspectives. I'm also very open to talking about ESOPs and helping people if they're thinking about an ESOP, if they have questions about it. We've we've done a lot of counseling. I, I think it really is just a, a super thing for so many, but it's not for everybody. And we love to help people and talk about it.
1: I'll drop Rob's email address in our show notes so that if people want to reach out to you, Rob, they can do that. You're a good man for investing so much time with this. You're a good man, period. So thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure, as always, to spend time with you. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Ed. It's been great.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's Group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.